I'd ask you to turn in your Bible with me to Romans chapter 3. You know, in order to understand the Bible, we have to pay attention to individual words. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace, refined seven times. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested, and therefore it's pure and it's flawless. In fact, many of the great doctrines of the Bible revolve around a single word. And next week, we're going to spend a little time on vocabulary. We're going to look closely at words like justified in verse 24 and redemption in verse 24 and propitiation in verse 25. These are some of the Bible's main words. But you know, it's also important that we not overlook some of what we consider the not so important words, the secondary words, the little words. One of my favorite words in the Bible is a little word. It's in probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's that little word, so. It doesn't just say God loved the world. It says God so loved the world. Little word with a big meaning. Because it tells us what it was that motivated the heart of God to provide our salvation. Well, we find two such little words in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, begins, but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls these two words the greatest turning point in God's dealings with the human race. Ray Steadman called them God's great nevertheless in the face of man's failure. But now. Now, if there's a but now, there has to be an and then. What's the and then? Well, if you were with us last week, you know that Paul left us in deep weeds because he tells us in the passage we were in that we are in God's courtroom facing a charge of sin in the first degree or actually sin in every degree. And Paul, acting as our prosecutor, lays out the evidence against us in verses 10 to 18. He says, there's none righteous, none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. There's none who does good. Our throats are an open grave. Our tongues keep deceiving. Snake's poison is under our lips. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in our paths. We don't know the way of peace, and we have no fear of God. The evidence is overwhelming. In fact, it's so overwhelming that in verse 19, he says, every mouth is closed. We stand silent before God as the verdict is read. Also in verse 19, all the world is guilty before God. And then we come to verse 21. But then. But then in the silence, as we're waiting for the judgment to fall, as we're waiting for the wrath of God, as our heads are down and our peripheral vision is looking for the feet of the executioners to come in and take us away, 
Instead, we find that the judge gets off his chair, takes off his robe, comes down, and puts himself into the hands of the executioners, and he goes out and pays our sentence of death. You see, that's the gospel. That's the good news. God provides pardon for guilty sinners. God provides a way of salvation. God provides a way for wrong people to get right. And Paul describes that way in verses 21 to 31. Donald Gray Barnhouse calls this the most important paragraph in the Bible. So we're not going to rush through it. We're going to take a couple of weeks to go through this paragraph. And it begins with the words, but now. But now what? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now to understand the contrast, we need to go back to chapter 1 and verse 18. Because in chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul said, the wrath of God is revealed. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. We deserve God's wrath. Instead, we get God's righteousness. Now, there are two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. There is self-righteousness, and there is imputed righteousness. Self-righteousness is man's righteousness. And Paul already told us in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Self-righteousness is man's righteousness. Imputed righteousness is God's righteousness put to man's account. It's illustrated in the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. Jesus said two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax gatherer. The Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers. In fact, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax gatherer over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. That is self-righteousness. I, I, I. In contrast, we're told that the tax gatherer was unwilling to even lift his eyes up to heaven. But beating on his breast, he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said this. He said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And that word justified means declared righteous. This man who had no righteousness of his own but cried out to God, went home declared righteous. You see, that is imputed righteousness. God's righteousness put to his account. I think Paul probably appreciated this distinction as much as anybody. And in Philippians chapter 3, he lists some of his own credentials in verse 5. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness in the law, I was found blameless. Paul says, if heaven were gained through self-righteousness, I would be through the door. But Paul didn't list his credentials to brag about them. Instead, if you read on in that passage, he listed his credentials so that he could tear them up and throw them away. He goes on to say, whatever things were gained to me, I've counted as loss. And more than that, I count all things to be lost and count them but rubbish. That word means horse manure. 
All these accomplishments, all this self-righteousness, I count it as horse manure in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, that self-righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, my self-righteousness is horse manure and I don't want it. I want the righteousness that comes from God. And that's what Paul's talking to us about here in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God. You say, well, how do I get that righteousness? How do I get from and then to but now? How do I get from the guilt of verse 19 to the grace of verse 24? How do wrong people get right? Well, the answer is found in four short phrases in verses 21 to 23. And I want us to concentrate on those phrases. The first phrase is apart from law in verse 21. Now, your Bible may say apart from the law. The should be in italics because the definite article is not there in the Greek. He's saying apart from law. It includes not just the law of Moses, but what he's talking about is the principle of law. And the principle of law is a day's pay for a day's work. The principle of law is I do certain things for God and God does certain things for me. The principle of law is I do certain things for God and God owes me. Now, it's difficult for men to think about righteousness without thinking about the law. Because our tendency is to associate righteousness with the deeds that we do in obedience to the law. You know, whenever I want to get somebody into a spiritual conversation, I often ask them this hypothetical question. I say, let's assume you died today, and we both know that you're not going to go before St. Peter's at the gate because that's just jokes. You die today, and you go before God. And God asks you, why should I let you into my perfect heaven? You know, when I ask that question of people, almost all the answers that I get are based on the principle of law. One of the most common answers I get is people say, I believe that if I do the best I can, God will let me in. And I love that answer because when somebody gives me that answer, they say, I I believe if I do the best I can, God's going to let me in. It tells me they haven't really thought through to the logical conclusion. Because all I have to ask them is, well, have you done the best you can? Was there ever a time in any given situation when you could have done better? And they say, yeah. And I say, well, then you flunked your own standard. You see, God doesn't even have to bring his standard in because he can use your standard the best you can and you flunk. The second most common answer I hear is, I believe God will look at my life and see that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Have you heard this one? Maybe you say this one. Essentially what that person is saying is, God, just look at the record. Let's assume today you left here, got in your car, drove down Broadway 70 miles an hour, ran every traffic light. When the police finally caught up to you down at the river, you jumped out of your car and punched a police officer. They arrested you. You show up in court. 
the judge says that'll be a $1,000 fine and 90 days in jail. And you say, but your honor, just look at my record. I mean, I've been driving for nearly 20 years and this is only my 10th ticket. That's only like one every two years. And your honor, this is only the third time I've been arrested. I usually stop at red lights. I usually respect police officers. In fact, I always wear my seatbelt. You see, your honor, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Just look at the record. You see, the problem with looking at the record is that the record condemns you. Heaven cannot be attained by the principle of law. No matter how good you think you do, no matter how close you think you come. In fact, verse 20 tells us it's impossible. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You see, God's standard is perfection, 100%. And if he lets a person into heaven who's 99% righteous, then heaven will be 1% corrupt. God's standard is perfection, and He never lowers it. And when we grasp that, then we begin to understand that heaven can't be achieved by works of the law. It's apart from law. You see, the best answer an unbeliever can give to that hypothetical question, what would you say to God, is I wouldn't have anything to say. Because when you say that, you're agreeing with God's evaluation and you're ready for God's provision. See, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Just take a moment and look over to Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is giving His famous sermon on the mountain. Matthew chapter 5. Notice what He says in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass those guys. And the guys he's pointing at are the religious leaders of that day. The guys who knew how to put on a show when it came to righteousness. If they had to pick who's the most righteous people around, they would have guessed it's the scribes and the Pharisees because they tell us they're righteous all the time. Jesus says, you've got to beat them to get into heaven. And then after saying that, beginning in verse 21, He begins to raise the bar. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, if you're angry at your brother, you're guilty of murder. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust in your heart after a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. So he says, you've got to pass these guys. Then he begins to raise the bar, showing them that the law is not just talking about external things. It's talking about internal motives. And so he begins to tighten the screws on them. And then the clincher comes at the end of the chapter. Verse 48. He says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
You say, well, nobody's perfect. That's the point. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to surpass them. The standard's higher. The bar is higher than you ever thought. And the standard is perfection. You see, that's why he began the sermon in verse 3 by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the ones who come to God and say, I don't have anything to offer you at all. You see, the standard is perfection. And when we we realize we can't achieve the standard, then we come to God poor in spirit and He gives us His righteousness. Because salvation is apart from law. Come back to Romans chapter 3. Second phrase I want you to notice is also in verse 21. It's the righteousness of God. That little phrase, of God. You see, salvation is apart from law. It's apart from what we do. In fact, it's apart from us altogether. It doesn't come from below. It comes from above. It's of God. We stand silent and condemned in the courtroom of God. And God comes to our rescue. God gives to us who have no righteousness His righteousness. Now let me make sure you understand this. When you're starting out of town on a trip and you look down at your gas gauge and it shows you've got three quarters of a tank, you say, I think I'm going to top off my gas tank. So you pull into the gas station more out of convenience than out of need. But that's not the way it works with righteousness. You see, verse 21 doesn't say, but now our righteousness is topped off with God's righteousness. No. You see, your tank is empty. And if it's not empty, then you need to empty it. Because self-righteousness cannot be added to by God. It has to be eliminated. It has to be considered horse manure. Isaiah 64, 6 says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. You see, the only righteousness that is acceptable to God is God's righteousness. Do you ever wonder why Jesus came to the earth for 33 years? I mean... If he was just going to die and rise again, he really could have come for a weekend. Why did he come for 33 years? Well, I could answer that several ways, but one reason he came for 33 years was to live a life of righteousness that he could put to your account. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now that's the most lopsided exchange in history. God took your sin and put it on Jesus. And He took Jesus' righteousness and He put it on you. He put it to your account. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Christ has become our righteousness. You see, it's of God. You say, well, that's a great deal. Where did that idea come from? 
Well, notice what he says at the end of verse 21. It's the righteousness of God being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, what he's telling us is that the Old Testament scriptures tell us that this is going to happen throughout. The law bears witness to this. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what's the first thing they did? They tried to hide their shame with fig leaves. Now, did God come to them and say, Oh, that's good, but let me just add a few more fig leaves. No. God covered them with animal skins. And what do animal skins require? The death of the animal. God took their fig leaves away and replaced them with His covering of righteousness. And what was God saying? When it comes to sin, you cannot cover yourself. God has to cover you and it requires the death of another. You see, God bore witness in the law. Later in Genesis, when God wanted to test Abraham, why did He tell Abraham to take his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him? Why Isaac? Why this promised child? Why this child that Abraham had waited so long for? Why this child that was born miraculously through a dead womb? Why this child through whom God had promised to bless all the nations? Why was that the test? Well, it was because it was a striking picture of how God would one day give His only Son for us on that very identical mountain. You see, God bore witness in the law. On Israel's last night in Egypt, God required that each family take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and sacrifice it and put the blood on the doors of their house. And where there was no blood, there was death. In every house where there was blood, it says God passed over them. What was God doing? He was setting the stage for our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And when we apply His blood to our life, the judgment of God passes over us. God bore witness in the law. In fact, it's interesting that in the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, these very books that list all the unyielding commands of God, God also gives instructions for sacrifices. You see, God gave the law. God also gave the altar to teach us the principle of substitution. God was saying, here's the law, but I know you can't keep the law. So here's the death. Here's the sacrifice that pays the price. And every one of those sacrifices was looking forward to the coming of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not only did God bear witness in the law, Paul says He bore witness in the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah in Isaiah 53 who said, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. God bore witness 
in the law and the prophets. That's why when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, it says he could begin with Moses and with all the prophets and explain to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You see, the Old Testament scriptures made it clear that righteousness would not come from men. It's all from God. And then there's a third phrase I want you to notice. And that's the phrase, through faith. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Since righteousness doesn't come by the principle of law, since it doesn't come by our works, and since it's not even our righteousness, it's God's righteousness, how do we appropriate it? How do I get God's righteousness deposited in my account? Well, Paul answers that very simply. He says it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, faith is a word we talk about a lot, and it's a word we really need to understand. What is faith? We know you exercise faith every day. When you sat down in that seat this morning, you did so by faith that that seat would hold you up. When you drive down the freeway 70 miles an hour, you have faith in the highway department that that road is going to be safe and reliable. When you eat your cream of wheat, you have faith that your wife didn't poison you. We live by faith. But let me make two important points about faith. Number one, faith involves commitment. You see, if you said to me, I believe this seat will hold me up and you're still standing, that's not faith. Faith is when you put your weight down on the seat. Faith is when you trust that seat that you say you believe in. At camp a couple weeks ago, some of our kids and counselors and our youth pastor did a high ropes course. They were about 30 feet in the air balancing on top of a telephone pole and walking along a cable and swinging on a zip line. Every step required faith. I went also and watched. (laughs) My feet at no moment ever left the ground. But see, if you ask me, Dan, do you believe that those ropes will hold you up? I would say absolutely. But see, that's not faith. It's not faith until I climb up there and step out. A lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between their mind and their heart. You see, faith is not just a mental assent to some facts. Faith is a commitment. I believe in Adolf Hitler, but I'm not a Nazi. I believe in Karl Marx, but I'm not a socialist. I believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm a Christian. And the difference is commitment. And then the second thing I would say about faith is faith does not save you. Christ does. See, it's not faith in faith. A lot of people think if I believe hard enough and long enough, maybe I'll get in. But you see, it's not faith in faith. 
It's faith in Christ. It's not even the amount of faith. Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. See, it's not the size of your faith, it's the size of your God. It's not the amount of your faith, it's the object that you put it in. There's a whole lot of people that have more faith than I do. I watch these skateboarders. They have faith to jump up on a steel rail and slide down with the only thing underneath them being concrete steps. I will never have that much faith in a skateboard. A teenager in the Middle East straps explosives to her body and goes into a mall as a human bomb because she believes that by doing that, Allah will promote her to paradise. That's a lot of faith. Unfortunately, it's the wrong object. What's the object of our faith? What does our faith have to be in to make wrong people right? Verse 22 tells us, Jesus Christ. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in religion. It's faith in a person. Jesus Christ. And then there's a fourth phrase I want you to notice. And that's the phrase, for all. Notice the end of verse 22. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that phrase, for all, appears twice here. It's for all who believe, for all have sinned. You see, it's for us all because we all need it. We have all sinned. And we said last week that word sin means to miss the mark. And what is the mark? He tells us right here. We have all sinned. We have all missed the mark. And what is the mark? We have fallen short of the glory of God. That is all that God is. That is the perfection of God. Suppose I said, let's all stand up. And on the count of three, we'll jump up and touch the ceiling. And it doesn't really matter if you have a vertical leap of three inches or three feet. You're going to fall short because the standard is about 40 feet. And you may look around and say, you know, we all jump up and you look around and say, well, I'm out jumping Rick Chastain. Or you may say, well, but, but I'm, I think I'm jumping higher than anyone around me. See, that doesn't matter. See, the issue is not, do I measure up to other people? The issue is, do I measure up to God? You see, if you look closely, God's standard is Himself. It's the glory of God. It's His glory, His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness. And that's why that interesting phrase appears at the end of verse 22. It says, there is no distinction. See, there's no difference between the most religious person and the most rebellious person. There's no difference between a person who is respectable and a person who is rep a reprobate. There is no difference between you and that person over in Marion on death row. 
All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And everyone sitting in here this morning is in that all. There's no question about that. You are in the all have sinned. The question is, are you in the all who believe? Have you come to the point in your life where you can say with Paul, my righteousness is horse manure. My good deeds are filthy rags. In God's courtroom, I am guilty as charged. I am a sinner. I fall short. There is no distinction. I am just as guilty as anyone else has ever been on this earth. And I turn in faith to the only one who can deliver me, Jesus Christ. I believe that He took my sentence He paid my penalty. He bore my sin. And He gave me His righteousness so that I can stand before God today absolutely righteous. I can stand before God today 100% righteous because I have been given His righteousness. In fact, I stand before God today just as holy, just as righteous as Jesus Christ because it's His righteousness that has been put into my account. You see, that's the Gospel. That's the good news. And so the question I want to close with this morning in asking you is, are you still in the all have sinned? Or are you in the all who believe? Are you still at and then? Or or have you arrived at but now? Are you standing before God in your own righteousness? Filthy rags? Fig leaves? Or do you have the righteousness of God? The difference is just a commitment of faith away. And I'm going to invite you to make that commitment this morning. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. They're going to lead us in an invitation chorus. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing together. And if God has spoken to your heart today to call you to Himself, I'm going to invite you to come as we sing together. And come in childlike faith to Jesus Christ this morning.